Welcome to City Arts and Lectures, a season of talks and on-stage conversations with some of the most celebrated writers, artists and thinkers of our day, recorded before an audience at the Norse Theatre in San Francisco. This week, we bring together feminist thought leaders to celebrate the publication of Jill Soloway's book, She Wants It, Desire, Power and Toppling the Patriarchy. Soloway is the creator and showrunner of Transparent and I Love Dick. On October 25th, 2018, City Arts and Lectures hosted Hannah Gadsby, best known for her comedy performance Nanette, Lily Loofborough, Susan Stryker and Faith Soloway for an evening of comedy, music, debate and conversation hosted by Faviana Rodriguez, Cara Rose de Fabio and Jill Soloway. Ladies and gentlemen, is a totally outdated way of welcoming people to events. It's so binary. Let's start all over again. Human beings. Um, so we're going to start by having one of my favorite thought leaders. She's San Francisco born and raised. She's interested in queer embodiment. I know because I asked her backstage what she's interested in. She's a cultural strategist at, at, at the Economic Security Project, and she will be convening a conversation with both me and Hannah Gadsby regarding my book right now. Please welcome Kara Rose DeFabio. <laughs> Chief Kara Rose. Hello. Thank you. That was the best play on I think I've ever had. Oh, I really happy to be here. <laughs> um, I'm so excited to talk to you all, um, all of you today um, uh, about this book that you wrote. She wants it. I think it's such a genius title because um, aside from being uh, wonderful in any sort of impression you can imagine, um, it also allows you to kind of shift the perspective on who's saying she wants it, right? Is it the kind of uh, weaponized version of female desire that might be levied by a man, for instance? Or is it talking a little bit more about ambition? And I'm kind of curious um, just to hear you talk a little bit about why female desire or queer desire is still so transgressive. Um, yeah, you know, I was trying to figure out what to call the book. I had a few other titles. I was thinking about calling it... Um, what are you doing to get what you want? Which is kind of an acting thing that we ask uh, our characters to know and our writers to know about our characters. I think at one point for a year, the book was called, Will You Still Love Me If? I think Lana Del Rey took that title though. <laughs> Lana Del Rey took it from me. <laughs> um, and then I found a grant proposal that I wrote when I was in my 20s for a documentary around these same questions about consent called She Wants It. And I realized, I've been thinking, thinking about this for so long. What does it mean? I have, to, I have to keep talking about it. And so, yeah, even though I use the they pronouns now, as Faith so beautifully saying. Thank you. You're welcome. Oh, here she goes. <laughs> You're welcome, my non-binary sibling. That's all I have. Oh, OK. It's enough. 
Um, Thank you. It's really good. You're enough, Faith. You're enough. You're enough. We're all enough. So yeah, I think at some point, editors, other people were like, should you change the name to They Want It or She Wanted It? <laughs> Not as catchy. Um, but it, it really is about that idea that um, women are shamed for their desire. Women, queer people, non-binary people, trans people, shamed for their desire. And you know, you said it as levied by two men talking about a third person. They're, they're, it's, a call, it's a call to sexual violence. It's a call to objectification. And yet, you know, as a director, um, what I'm trying to do when I'm making a film is I'm having to or wanting to engage my desire over and over again. I want this actor. I want this backdrop. I want this camera. I want this lens. I want this scene. I want this music. So you have to kind of say, I want, I want, I want as an artist. And I started to realize that, um, you know, at growing up female, we're expected to just have such a tiny little strip of real estate to stand on. Like we have a quarter inch where we're safe. You have to be sexy and cute and pretty, but not so sexy and cute and pretty that you get too much attention and you never are allowed to have desire because you're always being careful of inciting desire. And uh, we're just never, never able to really connect up to that feeling. And one of the things I talk about in the book is um, this turning point in my life when uh, in high school, like out of nowhere, I had like breasts overnight. But um, I realized that that was a real turning point because I became a thing to so many people. I became a thing to so many men and guys. And I, it took me many, many years to recover because I'm kind of like a go along person. So I was like, I can handle this. And I just went into that persona of being somebody that people were um, talking about. And I think even like the she wants it thing was probably something that was being said behind my back because my body had really betrayed me in a way. And I now was wearing this costume that I didn't consent to actually. <laughs> and went through you know, decades um, trying to understand how to be this person that people wanted something from that I didn't really, you know, it took me a really, really long time to understand. Um, and, and right you know, when my parent came out, for some reason, right around that time, I had this kind of feeling of like, okay, I can get breast reduction surgery. I don't know why, but this idea of queerness and transness made me feel like I had the right to change my body and, and get my body into alignment with myself. Are you you're worried that there's you're a... You're right here. <laughs> what was that? You're right here. No, I'm just... Am I right? <laughs> I come to take you away. Yeah. Sorry. Anyway. I'm just very easily distracted. Yes. It's a painful story. I'm so sorry. No, no, that's... <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, mean, I, I had a, the opposite puberty to you in a way. Um, because I didn't get a visit from the breast fairy. Um, <laughs> she had a rusted day off. Um, so I got the thigh fairy instead. She popped in and it was sort of like, uh, she doesn't get a lot of work, so I think she was really wanting to make an impression on this contract. <laughs> and it just sort of felt like she had a real trigger finger. And I just, it was overnight as well. Like it just seemed overnight, all overnight, just these just really massive hips. Uh, and it, but that I felt betrayed as well because I, you know, I just assumed I was one of the, you know, the same as my brothers. And then I'm like, oh, I'm postmenopausal. <laughs> like, that's the body, that's the body I got. 
you know, and uh, it's like puberty, puberty really played a very cruel trick on me. You know, it's as if they were like, let's make this one into the ultimate baby carrying vessel. <laughs> and then give her absolutely no desire to make one. Just, just no need. I'm like a transformer that doesn't fancy driving. You know, like... <laughs> <laughs> and people say that to me, so, you know, honestly, people have said, like, you should have children, like, you've, you've got half the furniture, this is a waste, and I'm like, what the f***? But generally, what that did to me, having this body, um, it meant that I was invisible, I became invisible. Um, men didn't look at me, um, which in a way was a reprieve, but also being invisible when you're a young person is incredibly painful. So although I escaped you know, uh, a lot of what, um, uh, you know, more femme-presenting femme women get, you know, I, you know, uh, invisibility is, is painful for a young person. Now, you know, most, as most older women know, yeah, it's your lot, and it's actually quite nice. But, um, <laughs> you know, certain body types don't, you know, and particularly coupled with the way that I dress, completely invisible. Was there a moment, just like as Jill was saying about how they had something click about this kind of sense of ownership of their own body and the uh, ability and maybe permission to change it? Was there a moment that kind of clicked for you, either in how you present or? I've always, I've always been like this, but um, uh, for me, it was, it's a little different. For me, a moment, it was three years ago, a moment clicked, I was diagnosed with autism. Um, and that, for me, was a, a huge moment. I, I finally understood so much about myself. And a lot of that, you know, a lot of what is about the way I dress and the way I am comes back to some of my struggles with, uh, you know, sensitivity. Like, I can't grow my hair because it's just annoying. Like, I'm really sensitive. I'm really sensitive with my skin, all my clothes. Like, I can't wear heels um, or I can't wear lots of, you know, like frills and 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 uh, but you look so good in frills and I, heels. I, actually yeah but the, i'm so i'm so aware of it all day it's exhausting so i like a lot of what i've done in my life you know uh is partly to do with this but also to me i live my entire life and it's a cruel thing to you know for late diagnosis um and i've had to deal with a lot of grief about you know not understanding myself because when you don't understand what it is that makes you different. You think that there's something fundamentally wrong with you. And when I found that out, what I understood then was, oh, I'm not broken, the world is. And that was the moment for me. It's like, we've made it all up. <laughs> Everything we've made up. All these, and we need them. We need all this stuff we've made up. You know, otherwise we're just, you know, who knows? But, you know, but there is a comfort in that, you know, the, you know, what is gender is, you know, a lot to do with a lot of stuff we don't actually understand about our own brains. And that's a comfort for me. That was a real comfort. Um, I want to go back to desire and the relationship to ambition for a moment. Um, I love Dick. Um, oh, you do? I do. I didn't and think that. I thought you were gay. <laughs> um. <laughs> <Giddy> Sorry. <laughs> That wasn't okay. And, um, that was not okay. That's, and why, that's why I named it that, so I could do that to exactly. people. Exactly. I, I do love carrying that book with me on the subway for just that reason. But um, uh, 
No, um, so Chris Krause's book that you adapted into a TV show um, really, it, talks about this link between kind of sexual desire and professional ambition in a way that I think is really interesting and I'm kind of curious how you think the dials on that need to be turned up or down with gender. So kind of, you know, in both of your work, like how much of you sitting here today has to do with how bad you want it? Hmm. That's a great question. Well, yeah, I think I've always really wanted something but I didn't know what it was. Kind of like waking up in the middle of the night with like that three in the morning thing, like, it's not enough. But it was more like, it's not enough. This feeling of like, I have to make the world a better place. I have to fix something. I have to make it better. I have to do something. Um, and it was this driving that sometimes felt like ambition, sometimes felt like I needed to get my ideas out there, sometimes feeling like I wanted people to see me or to know me. And yet I was very, there was almost like there was a kind of weather system always coming at me where it just was impossible for me. And I was somebody who was so ambitious and had so many great relationships in Hollywood and I worked at HBO and Showtime, I worked on Six Feet Under and United States of Terra and had all kinds of access. Even at United States of Terra, I was the showrunner and I was not ever able to get anybody to let me direct an episode of everything, not once. After 10, 15 years in the business, again, running the show and saying, I will run the show if I can direct an episode, they said, no, you're not ready. I said, okay, fine, I'll just run the show then, maybe next year. Like, I took no for an answer all the time when it came to directing because you know, there's a, a sense of kind of opportunity hoarding going, around, going on around cis men, white men, straight men, the men who have their hands on the gays. Um, and I just couldn't talk my way into that first directing gig as much as I tried and kind of haranguing and asking and wanting it and the desire wasn't really enough. Um, and so ultimately it was desperation that I think became enough. I was, um, I talk about this a little bit in the book, I was, I had worked on a whole bunch of great shows and I had also become that person who was like, Jill Soloway has been in the business forever, let's put them with a hot, young, brand new infant terrible to teach them how to write television. So I ended up being the person who was like the, the you know, like the veteran. They were, I was starting to get referred to as a veteran showrunner and that seemed fine, um, but I kept wanting to like punch above my weight and be able to fix a scene or fix a moment, and I couldn't do it as a writer. And got to this place where I couldn't really get hired on other people's shows anymore because of my ambition. And um, I ju it just, it's like I knew too much, but I couldn't get anybody to make the shows I wanted to make. I think I wrote 10 to 15 pilots before Transparent. I would sell like two or three pilots a year. None of them would ever get made. Always about unlikable Jewish women. <laughs> um, and I had a, um, I had like a, a, a moment where I was either gonna leave town forever and move to Northern California. That was my plan. I was gonna become a women's studies professor and wear caftans and write poetry. I can see that future. It's still coming. <laughs> Um, I was gonna live up in Casadero, up by the Russian River. I've still got plans, that's where I'm gonna end up. 
And, um, but I took sort of, I had this one last stab and made a short film and submitted it to Sundance. Um, it was my kind of like last hurrah. And it was actually right around that time when my parent called me and came out as trans. It was like two days, you know, the two days between getting the call from Sundance saying, okay, your, your film is in. And then a couple days later, my parent calling me and coming out as trans. So I was on these two tracks, you know, um, naming myself as a director, realizing that I had this genderqueer, or, you know, genderqueer inheritance, a, a, a parent who I didn't know who they were at all. Um, also that weird, weird feeling, you can get breast reduction surgery now, no idea why, that was like in the back of my head. Um, and suddenly, <laughs> isn't that weird? It was like right there. We're looking back there. What was that? I was looking for it. Oh, back, back there. That's the little thought, the little butterfly. You can get breast reduction. Butterfly, huh? Butterfly. Um, and just suddenly now I was like driven in this new way to kind of come out to myself and just wouldn't stop. So I made the short film and then within like that year I made, uh, you know, I directed a, um, a, a feature, Afternoon Delight. And thank you. Um, and ended up winning the directing award at Sundance that year, came back and then right away pitched the show about, um, about my family. And you know, it took having the movie to be able to say, I know how to make, you know, I know how, I, I know how to guarantee the tone. Look at the movie, here it is, the tone. I, you know, I have the production designer, I have the cinematographer, like this is what my voice looks like. I finally had something that was my voice. And then, you know, I think I realized like, when I finally got the show on the air that I had been writing TV show pilots about unlikable Jewish women for decades, but it took a man playing one for people to let me have the... Isn't that awful? That, I mean, it's kind of crazy that it's, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. But I guess it was a, it was a you know, timely story. And it was amazing actually that that Amazon was ready in that moment with their need to do something new. And we had the story in our family and, and that, that was a moment when I actually knew how to execute it. So it was desire mixed with timing, mixed with you know, the gift of my parent coming out and this beat change you know, in my mid 40s where suddenly I think our whole, I'll look at Faith here, like I think our, our whole, lean back Hannah, Hannah so I can look at Faith, our whole family <laughs> stay back there. We kind of had a rethink, right? Yeah, yeah. Real rethink. Real rethink. <laughs> yeah. So, and for you, Hannah, is that, does that... <laughs> does not look like my life <laughs> at all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, ambition wasn't in my wheelhouse. Um, I mean, I And yet here you are. I mean, I feel like... Yeah, look, yeah. Look, I've, I've never made great decisions. Um, uh, but I, I came, come from a very, very different background. Uh, not a lot of um, opportunities. Um, you know, I failed school. I, you know, I, so I had to be, uh, you know, I got into university with a, as a mature age student, uh, you know, because I don't care by then. And so it's all these sorts of things, like, and that's because, you know, undiagnosed autism. I always knew that I was smart, but I never left any proof. Um, <laughs> And, you know, I fell through the cracks, so I didn't have ambition. I was just surviving. I was treading water, and I was so isolated. I live, you know, I look back, it breaks my heart at how isolated I was. 
you know, I really fell through the cracks. So it was my life was survival. And I was homeless um, when I first took up comedy. Um, like, I just entered a competition. And, like, it, there was no reason why comedy was going to be any better decision than any other weird decisions. I'd, I'd tried to sell knives. I'd... <laughs> worked on, on a, you know, cutting broccoli. I quite like that job. Um, but, you know... You had a job cutting broccoli? Yeah, harvesting broccoli behind a tractor. Um, <laughs> it's a bit easier than cauliflower. Because it sits up a bit. Uh, cauliflower's on the ground, it collects the dew, and, like, you've got to reach down further, and it's kind of hard to get the knife in. But broccoli's like a flower, and it's got a thin... You just, you know, it's, it's a lot easier, FYI. Asparagus is a bitch, absolute bitch. I hate, bro that's hard. And the worst one, this is the worst one, is I had a job for a couple of weeks on an organic farm uh, that grew lettuce, and my job was to just pick snails off my head. That's the job. That's why it's expensive. Um, and even, you know, and even when I was, uh, you, know, a, you know, doing stand-up, as soon as I did it, I knew I was, you know, had something, but it wasn't like, I'll do this now. It's just opportunities kept coming and I kept doing it. And it was through comedy and interrogating my own story that I got there. Like, I had to go back and, you know, undo all the immature version of events I'd told myself to understand myself, to see that I had a place in the world and then see that the world didn't have a place for me, but I could make it, but it was a, a real slog and not one I planned. So, it's, you know, but once I got there, you know, once I got, writing the net, that, that, was a, that was a deliberate, like that was me going, I think I've got it now, like that was my ambition. Um, but it took me a long time to get there, and it wasn't because people were knocking me back. It was just, I wasn't even <laughs> anywhere close. It was just like, oh yeah, I'll cut broccoli. <laughs> I, don't, I had nothing to give in job interviews. It's like, I've an art history degree and I can talk like Donald Duck, you know, like that's it. <laughs> so yeah, you can walk behind a tractor. <laughs> um, does making art about your life change the way you live it? Yeah. How? Well, you know, you've got to step up a bit, like... Because, I mean, you, you know, and it's well known in therapy that, you know, in order to overcome trauma, you need a, you need a cohesive narrative. And it, it really does work like that. Um, but, and you'd know this as well, it doesn't actually help until the world also accepts that cohesive narrative. And that's what happened to me in Nanette. Uh, I, what happened as I was touring it and felt it like the real remarkable thing was not me telling the story, was what happened in the rooms, where I felt it. I felt people going, oh, I understand this story. And that's what I did by accident. I gave a narrative to people that we hadn't talked about. And that's, it's, so it just, it, yeah, it does. Yeah, I think that answers it. Yeah, I got there, didn't I? <laughs> I got there. Yeah, I remember when I first kind of knew I wanted to be a writer, I was thinking more of a sort of prose thing in my 20s, essays, nonfiction, sort of wanting to be a little bit like maybe David Sedaris or Augustine Burroughs, sort of trying to think of myself in that, in that way. And, you know, knowing, like, I couldn't write 
mythology and even fiction, and that the only thing I felt I could write was uh, my life, so I thought I'd better have an interesting life. That sent me on some ill-advised trips to Costa Rica, um, five minutes sitting in a little cappuccino bar with my journal out, nothing to say, okay, close it, and off I go. You know, I, I kept trying to be that person who had an interesting enough life to write about it, but, but I think the shame is so great. You know, the constant feeling of, why am I doing this? What am I writing? I have no right to be writing. I mean, I still struggle with that all the time. You know, I, all the time. Once a day, I think, why did I write a book? Why, why did I put it out? And when I was writing it multiple times a day, you know, the thought, don't do this, just stop. Everybody's sick of you, you know, please stop. And constantly, you know, and, and I have all kinds of proof why, where I should feel okay about speaking or writing, and yet that uh, my friend Brett Paisel said that self-doubt is like, she thinks of it like the guy who always shows up early to the party with a cheese wheel. <laughs> He's the person that you didn't actually think was going to come and didn't want to invite, but he gets there 15 minutes before everybody else carrying a cheese wheel. But they brought a cheese wheel. Yeah, he brought a cheese wheel. And so he sits on your couch. You're still getting ready. I can and see then, your um, phone. I can see your phone. Yeah. <laughs> it's, the long, it's the only thing Oh, somebody's got their phone on? I Where hope your patients are okay. Hello. Are they okay? Do you need to go to surgery? <laughs> it's a doctor. It has to be. Um, I'm always pleased when there's a surgeon in the audience. Sorry, I get distracted easy. Autism. <laughs> I would continue, but I've lost my train of thought. Well, oh, I'm I was so sorry. Say, I, hope, I hope that the uh, assembled audience today is proof enough that um, you it should is, be cool. yeah. writing and, and yes. making art. I think so, but there's, what I think is something that we've done in society is like we've made art something that only a certain amount of people do and the rest are spectators. We don't do that with sport. Like people play sport, even though they'll never make the major leagues, they play it on the weekend, it's developed and it's like, it is doing the art that is also incredibly important. You know, like, but most people think, well, I'm not great at it, so I won't do it. But it is really Are you saying I'm important. not great at it? You're your... doing it, so you're great at it. But I'm talking about most people. But that shame you're talking about is that seed. Yeah. Mm. It's like only a special amount of select few can be artists. Um, uh, you know, and traditionally it's been men. It's been men, yeah. And also uh, just the genius narrative, oof. the idea of, like, the great minds. They wrote that. And what I hate... Oh, no, don't get me started. <laughs> Well, just thinking about how we were raised to think of all of the greats, the great thinker, I mean, yeah, the great thinkers and all of the leaders of the world and every painter and every musician. And look musician. where they got us. Yeah, look exactly where it got us, yeah. So, but, but I think the, the shame of saying, you know, you have to do two things. You have to say, I'm okay with not being your object because, you know, as you, as you break away from that feeling of being seen to write, you first have to sort of disengage from, you know, what it feels like to think that you belong to the world as a kind of object, which I think I did for many years, uh, thinking my, of myself as female or even femme. I, I had this kind of, uh, how, how am I coming off as my very first thought all the time? You know, how do I look? Am I cute? Am I nice? Am I good? Like, I was always seeing myself through other people's eyes. Um, this is, you know, sort of, was all wrapped up with heterosexuality for me and all wrapped up, I think, with even being vaguely femme-presenting. And of course, like, I don't want to be femme-shaming or femme-phobic, but for me, realizing that I didn't have to do it 
when I spent so much time and that kind of have to, you know, I have to put on makeup or I have to, I have to look right or I have to think about how I present. Like it was so, it, was, it just took, it really separated me from my mind. It was like inside voice, outside voice, inside look, outside look. And so as I began to get rid of some of these things, um, I started to just kind of feel like I was just one person, the same person inside my mind as I was on the outside, the same person inside my body as I looked. So for me, it was just a journey of wholeness. And um, that, that was a definite taking away of the constant self-judging, the constant like seeing myself being seen was fueling the self-hatred and the shame. I would love to hear you talk a little bit about you know, um, statistically, people who identify as trans are a very small portion of the population. But why should all feminists, maybe everybody, period, have a stake in this fight for trans rights? Wow, well actually I don't think, I mean I think the number of people who actually are trans and intersex is much bigger than anybody realizes. The number, it's, it's huge actually. Um, so we, in this fight, when they're talking about biological tests, we have to talk about the intersex population, and being intersex is as common as having red hair. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very common thing to do, but a lot of children are subjected to non-consensual surgeries, and people, a lot of people don't know they're intersex. The medical community tries to hide it from people, so there's a huge percentage of people who, whether or not they're trans or non-binary, there's a huge percentage of people that this just outright discriminates against. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, non-binary people, trans people, more and more, um, you know, obviously everybody's aware of who's in the trans community, but non-binary people are just starting. You know, every, every day I meet more and more people who identify as non-binary. So this kind of allyship, this, um, this intersectional big tent around gender, I actually think that there's something, something of a galvanizing moment here for us as people are starting to kind of link up and recognize the ways in which uh, patriarchy really is doing the exact same thing to everybody, and obviously worse for trans women than for cis women, worse for trans people than cis people, but um, it's all the same fight. So there, there's no question that we're all in it together, and, and coming up with an intersectional uh, power narrative, I think, is the work of the next decade so that we can start to create something that's as vigorous as what he has created, which is, you know, his kind of fascism is, is something that has, it, it is working on people. And it's, I think, our turn to start thinking about what's gonna work for our people. Um, so as we look to the future, um, you know, as you were saying, more and more people identify as gender nonconforming, especially when you talk to youth, right? It's a um, uh, very fluid in their own um, gender identities. And I'm curious, do you think, as like, I don't know, 20 years from now, that we'll have more genders or less gender? Gender full or gender less? I don't know, I think, I think gender is important. I think um, there are dynamics that people like with genders. Uh, you know, honey, you go ahead in, I'll carry the groceries. What? <laughs> That's where you went? <laughs> people, yeah, the, 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 uh, the That's people. Just being helpful. Is that gender? <laughs> fine, I'll carry the groceries then. Thank That's you. fine. Um, 
but there, there's dynamics that I don't think you can ever get rid of or, would, or don't need to get rid of. You know, I w we did these talks in New York and Masha Gessen, we were talking about the idea of the X designation, which I've been really excited about. In January, I'll be able to go and get an X on my driver's license in California, I guess everywhere, right here too, or at least we think we will. That was the plan. Um, but then, you know, she said, well, no, like the X necessitates, well, the M and the F have to be there for the X to exist, and why not just no gender at all? Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. So I you don't might know. have to talk to people and find out who they are. If you don't have... <laughs> if you don't, you can't make assumptions. <laughs> That's really handy. Yeah. <laughs> I, find, uh, I find the X triggering. I, f I failed maths and algebra really. <laughs> my own dad was my maths teacher. It is really a trauma point for me. Yeah. What I want to say, I will say something sensible. The thing is, there is theory, and then there's the pr practical reality of people who don't think in academic terms, and they need a framework. We do need gender, we not in our lifetime. We do need it, and so I think that the, placing the X there is to get people the idea, and hopefully will broaden the idea of what M and F also means. You know, I think one of the what, what's the most painful thing for me is like the limitation of what F means, because you know I, I have, yeah, <laughs> I was talking about it earlier. It's like I'm not a matriarch. But you know, you know what—it's that that is painful. Um, so I think by you know having this this something in between, and you know this the, the rule of threes is really important in humanity, and it always has been. You know, in all religions and all stories, the three is really important. So I think it, it would be really healthy, you know, to place that there, just to get you know bit of a, a trial. Yeah, a decade, a decade of the ex-gender, and mean, then maybe no gender after mm. that. All right. <laughs> it's I'm like Y2K with gender, there's gonna be a night <laughs> and we're all gonna lose our gender the next morning. That's triggering for me as well. Set your clocks. My, mom, my mom's name is K, and I don't want two of them. It's a Y2K joke. So everybody oh, set your clocks more. for gender Y2K 2020. Yeah. Can't wait. Um, <laughs> speaking awesome. of 2020. Yes. <laughs> um, I'd love to hear a little bit about 50-50 by 2020. Oh, yes. Let me talk about that. Um, <laughs> There's a few fans. Yeah. Well, you know, 50-50 by 2020 is a floating signifier, meaning that uh, we didn't invent it over there at Time's Up, but it ended up becoming a um, strategic initiative of Time's Up, and that means that uh, the Time's Up movement is uh, actively um, raising money for victims of sexual harassment and sexual assault and, and coming up with ways for, to keep the workplace safe. And then within the Time's Up movement, 5050 by 2020 is particularly working on intersectional activism, meaning that we're always attempting to make sure that as many opportunities as possible, as well as leadership positions, board positions, directors, producers, people who are making decisions, that those roles are filled by women, women of color, people of color, queer people, trans people, people with disabilities, and other otherized people. I try to say all of that. It's really good. Instead of the word woman, I try to just do the long-ass chain of things that means not white cis men. Um, so, because uh, you can't say not white cis men and, and, have, and raise money on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so um, 
tonight, you know, this but is you a fundraiser. that. I just did what? You just said we're going to raise money on not. That's what we're doing, but don't tell anybody. Oh. It's not the not white cis men charity. <laughs> it's not, yeah, it is They're not fine. a nonprofit called not white cis men. Um, it is called 5050 by 2020, but it means not white cis men. They're really good at raising money themselves. Yeah. It's called the world. Great. Well, I think we're all really excited to see where that goes. Um, I, I am, genuinely. Um, and I think now, yes. maybe, yes. we've heard so much about this book of yours. Yes. Can we hear I'm going to read a little from section from it. Yes, let's I'm do it. Leave. It's time to read. I have a question. Are there white cis men in the audience. You're brave. Really brave. Thanks for coming. So this is really, this is really about that feeling, about that feeling of, of shame. Nights were so lonely now that I was single again, but days were cranking forth. I felt inflated with purpose. Directing was so easy. It felt like my birthright. I had such grief over the wasted years that I had always believed the hype that, about legends, about who got to be filmmakers. If you didn't grow up that way, with a Super 8 in your hand, obsessed with what you could make the camera, camera do, well, forget it. How did men just keep taking up space as default storytellers? Never mind that women are always telling stories about their lives and their best friends' lives in everyday conversation, but they made us believe that's not real story. And as girls, we were always playing dolls. Was that real story? You realize when you make a movie that you've been doing this your whole life. Filmmaking is dolls. Men could arch toward their dream of being designated geniuses, with so much unpaid and unnamed help from wives and mothers and assistants who get their shine from their proximity to the genius, assisting in creating this ambient sense of belonging that men move through the world with. Sometimes I tripped on the math. I had finally made it. I had this TV show and all this power, and yet still I lived in the constant fear that the show would say too much. I had to fight the urge to shrink from the exposure of all of these people knowing too much, of thinking that I was too much. And then I would think about Giancarlo Stanton. He plays for the Miami Marlins and he had just gotten a $325 million contract for three years and he's just one guy, one guy I've never heard of on a team I've barely heard of. I used the idea of him to remind myself that I was nowhere near too big yet. I would multiply the scope of his salary potential. I mean, $325 million, that means that all of the budget of all of the years of Transparent were like in his calf. One guy. And I would multiply the scope of his salary potential atop all of the baseball players. There's what, at least 25 guys on a team, right? And, and baseball teams, how many teams are there? There's 30 guys, there's like 30 baseball teams, right? And not just baseball, but Okay, basketball and football, and there's hockey, and there's golf. Okay, now we're talking billions upon billions of dollars spent to help men watch men do things of interest to mostly men. 
the culture offering them exactly what they love all weekend long in the form of professional sports. A whole section just for them about this stuff every day in the newspaper. What would it be like to have things I love surrounding me everywhere? My favorite sport is feminist arguing. I'd love to hear an Emily Nussbaum versus Lena Dunham face-off. To hear like Roxanne Gay and bell hooks disagreeing about a nuance around, say, consent through an intersectional lens. And then they get into it with Patrice Kahn Colors and Linda Sarsour and a couple of Gloria's, Steinem and Allred. What if this thing I like, feminist arguing, was on TV all weekend long? Women wearing jerseys and carrying keychains on them that have names like Tina Fey and Alicia Garza and Tarana Burke. What if I got to watch this collision of all of my favorite people every Sunday, all day at home in my underwear with a beer and my whole family has to watch me watch this? What if, what if there were whole shows, whole shows devoted to cooking in the parking lots of these events? Just picture Masha Gessen and Jessica Valenti sitting across from each other in folding chairs on a huge field with close-ups on the Jumbotron. And if I didn't want to watch the Gessen-Valenti match at home, I could walk into a bar and there'd be a whole bunch of women watching it. And then when the matches weren't on TV during the week, I'd be at work clicking away, entering names into an Excel spreadsheet where I'd be betting on fantasy feminist arguing. would be privilege, and you know what else this would be? A great night to hear some live fantasy feminist arguing right here in San Francisco. That's right. Right here. We're gonna start with our referee tonight. Her name is Fabiana Rodriguez. She is an artist and activist who works on issues of racial justice. is a gender studies professor, a cancer with her moon in Taurus. She had an acai bowl for breakfast to prepare. She's known as three strikes and you're in, Dr. Susan Stryker! Fighter number two is a writer at Slate. She's been living in Oakland for 12 years. She enjoys herbal tea. She spent today preparing for this bat, this, this fight, taking a bath and napping. Please welcome fighter number two, none other than Lily I want you guys to feel free to cheer, do the wave, Yell, this is your feminist arguing sports match. Take it away, Fabiana. Yes. yes. All right, y'all. So let's let's start talking about the moment we're in. Backlash, the last gasp of white male supremacy. Tell us. I wish it was the last <laughs> gasp of white male supremacy. Um, unfortunately, I, I don't think it is. Uh, I think, um, yeah, boo, I know, but uh, trying, to, trying to keep it real here. You know, I think we're in a really scary moment. We shouldn't panic, but we need to be very serious about what's, what's happening in the world today. 
And how, how, how did we get here? I mean, what's your analysis on this? Well, I would take it back in some way, I mean, back to antiquity, but like in recent history, <laughs> you know? Um, and one of the reasons I think we can't be, we have to be like, have a lot of gender nuance in what we're talking about is that I really think part of what let the genie out of the bottle of our current troubles right now was when Obama was clearly gonna be the, you, the, the Democratic candidate for president and Sarah Palin becomes the, um, the, uh, the vice presidential candidate for the Republican Party. And I think she channeled, she channeled this racial animus that had been, um, you know, previously it's like people would think that or feel that, you know, maybe in the privacy of their own homes or sort of on the fringes of the internet, but it was not permissible to say some of the things that she said in public. And I think for the last 10 years, we have been watching this steadily building, um, you know, increasing comfort with expressing violent racism in public. I mean, I really do think it started then. And Lily, I mean, I mean, the Republicans were working on their 30-year plan. Their um, idea to support nativist ideology and just really begin to seed uh, culture um, through the way they talked about different issues. As we were talking backstage, you know, we were talking about that although um, in the political realm things are stalling, culturally things are shifting and they're radically moving. How do you describe this moment we're in? I feel like we're in a moment of rapidly accelerating backlashes. <laughs> so we're pinging back and forth between, I think you're right, I think it started with, perhaps with Obama, and then this Trump <laughs> is the backlash to the possibilities that Obama represented. And then I think Me Too became the backlash to Trump. And now I think Brett Kavanaugh was the backlash to Me Too. And that's scary. Um, and I think that you know, we're in a moment when the Overton window, right, that, that, that concept of the things that are sayable that everyone can agree on are sayable in polite society or whatever, um, that Overton window has smashed in both directions. And so we're in a moment that is sort of an ideological free-for-all. Well, and you know, you, you, you talked about backlash, right? And me too. And, and I would actually argue that um, culture moves faster than politics. And although in the political realm, winds are stalling and really the political establishment, they're holding on to these old ideas. Culturally, the power of survivors are telling their story. We're not going back. So culturally, things are, are moving. And culture always moves faster than politics, and culture is way ahead. I mean, Ellen came out in 97, a year after the Defense of Marriage Act passed. So can you talk a little bit about that? What, what are you noticing as far as how culture is moving, and what's the relationship? Um, how, how, how are people being, their, their minds being transformed, or consciousness? Well, you know, just to get back to the, um, uh, the Trump memo that came out on, on Sunday, you know, saying that uh, gender is a, you know, gender is an illusion, it's ideology, there's just a real physical, biological sex difference, there's males and females, and that's it. You know, that's, again, part of the backlash, because part of what, I, what it is that props up the power structure is the idea that there are two and only two genders and one of them is subordinated to the other. And so that to blow up that gender binary is part of a really um, 
I mean, that is part of radical revolutionary politics. You know, I, I heard Jill say this is a, a, a feminist, uh, you know, revival meeting. Well, it's like, you know, we need to have a conversion experience, y'all, mm -hmm. about gender. You know, it's yes. like, you know, everybody needs to change their gender. You know, and let me tell you, it's like, it's not hard. You can do it. It's fine. All right. We, we can all do it in our own ways. But, you know, we do need to have our kind of come to gender moment. That's what I would say. Love it. Love it. Know? I mean, right. <laughs> Let's have our come to as, as our faith tells us, I mean, this, this faith, right? This faith right here, it's, it's like a sausage casing, right? We can take it off, we can shape it differently, and, and taking our gender apart, making it be something different. It's like that is actually part of political change we can engage in right now. Make gender work differently. wanted to note that feminist fighting isn't competitive at all. Just a lot of agreement. <laughs> no, I can agree with you more. Yes. All right, move on to the second question. Referee Rodriguez. Okay, so what's changed for men in this moment? You know, we talk about uh, in, in the Time's Up spaces, they say, oh, it's, there's a witch hunt happening. But what do you think is, is, is changing for men? Are we looking at another kind of masculinity? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I don't know anything about it. <laughs> okay. uh, well, uh, I think that one of the strange encouragements about a backlash and about, for example, Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation, dark as that moment was, oh. is the fact, two things. One is that uh, tremendous anxiety over what traditional American masculinity means, represents, and has historically been permitted to do was expressed during that confirmation hearing, and that was a conversation we needed to have. Right. Um, and so I'm glad we had it, and I hope we don't stop, because I think we're tempted to be very consequentialist in this society, but okay, he's confirmed, so now none of that mattered. No, it mattered. And, and one of the things that I think became very clear in the course of that confirmation was the fact that um, we are not used to thinking about the culture that shapes men as being anything other than normal and the toxicity of the Georgetown prep environment, the way in which boys are encouraged to like, you know, kind of woo each other by being cruel to women. Like these are, these are things that it is important to have a large and public conversation about, and we did. Um, that matters, and we need to keep talking about it. What would... <laughs> and is it as simple as destroying patriarchy? What about white supremacy? What about capitalism? Uh, they're, they're linked. They're like three okay. great tastes that. that taste terrible together. Okay. <laughs> so that's all. Yeah. I love that, that, that you're calling that simple. That's my favorite. <laughs> Destroying patriarchy. Um, all three of those must happen. Um, God help us all. I don't know. I'm... Well, let's talk about power and privilege. How would you define privilege? Uh, you know, I think we all have mixes of power and privilege, you know, that we're all marginalized in some ways, empowered in others, and like, and, you know, even if you, you know, it's like we take for granted a lot of us that maybe we're able-bodied or that we can speak the language in the country where we live or we can get, you know, documentation that allows us to, you know, open a bank account or something like that. 
you know, we've all got privilege, um, even though, you know, many of us are also marginalized in other ways. And I think if you, you really own your privilege, you don't feel, I mean, it's like some of it you just get dealt, some of it, you know, you didn't earn, some of it maybe you did. Uh, but I think if you really own your privilege and don't feel guilty about it, I think a lot of times people feel guilty, particularly if they have a, a leftist, you know, sensibility. They feel guilty about privileges that they have. But if you own your privilege, you can use that privilege to do the kind of work that you want to do. You bring it, yes. you bring yes. it to the struggle where it needs to be brought. You use it to to to. To rebalance the hierarchies, you know, it's like you and you put that privilege that you have in a place where you you need to lift people up. But the the other thing I would say is that one of privilege can cause blindness. Mm. You know, it causes blindness, and it's like if you're in a privileged position as you're trying to bring whatever you bring to a struggle that you care about. Don't forget that it's the people who actually live the consequences of that oppression that you find unjust, who you need to listen to and stand aside for. It's the people who live the oppression who need to lead the movement to overthrow it. Absolutely. I mean, one, one, of, the, uh, one of the definitions of privilege that I find so memorable uh, is by uh, Shakti Butler, where she talks about that privilege is the amount of safety that you can access at any time whether it's when you're getting pulled over by the police or when you're walking down the street alone or when you're walking through an airport security line and that the world is an unsafe place. And so according to how much we can access at any moment is really related to our responsibility of how we act. What would you say is something that people can consider on how they can use their power and privilege in this moment? And also, are we having a new kind of language even to understand it? Um, okay, so <laughs> I, I'm going to talk about Trump for a second, and I'm sorry, but I, I think that it's important, I, I think that a secondary effect of something that he does a lot is important to understand if we want to think harder about how we can use our privilege and what, what we can do with it. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but he's a little bit of a schoolyard bully and uses a lot of those tactics, and I'm not even sure how much intentionality there is sometimes. I think it's very hard to tell. Um, but one of the things that I think has been particularly hard for the left and for progressives has been the fact that it is a very diverse coalition of people with a very broad variety of needs, whereas the demographics that Trump is courting are pretty specific um, and easier to unify for that reason. Um, and one of the things that he has done, which has really worked at dividing the left, I think, has been exacerbating existing divisions that the left already has because there are you know, communities with different needs that Democrats certainly have not always been very good at addressing. So this is a true Achilles heel and he's kind of gnawing at it. Um, and I think that the way that that is functioning in practice socially, and this is where it's really damaging to us, is that by attacking different communities constantly and exhausting us all and giving us outrage fatigue, he's giving many communities that he's attacking the impression that other progressives don't care. They are not speaking out when he, attra when he attacks them. He's not, you know, the, the support that should be pouring out from ostensible allies is not always present because he's exhausting us. <laughs> um, so I think you have to dig deep. And I think if you have privilege and, and are thinking, you know what, I'm gonna sit this one out, you can't. And 
support the transgender community, support Native Americans, speak out every single time you see something unfair happening, whether it's on the street, on BART, doesn't matter. Interfere and use your privilege to help people who need it because they really need it right now. And my God, please vote, vote because other people need it really badly. They need this to stop. Yes, and the referee too. So we're gonna, we're gonna leave with a little, little lullaby, aren't we? We can say 99, aren't we? Aren't we, Faith? We're gonna sing 99 to you guys. When the day fades away, leaving you its residue of unspoken moments and unfinished thoughts. Raise your eyes to the sky, let the moon cradle you and sing you to sleep with her lullaby. Nighty night, my friends, we hope we see you again, and all will be fine by the morning light. Please welcome on stage everyone you've seen this evening and say nighty night. You've been listening to Jill Soloway, Hannah Gadsby, and a gathering of feminist thought leaders in a celebration of Soloway's new book, She Wants It. This programme was recorded at the Norse Theatre in San Francisco on October 25th, 2018. These broadcasts are produced by City Arts and Lectures in association with KQED Public Radio, San Francisco. Executive producers are Kate Goldstein-Briar and Holly Mulder-Wallen. Director of Communications and Design is Alexandra Washkin. Production and Communications Assistant is Juliet Gelfman-Randazzo. The Post-Production Director is Nina Thorson. Norse Theatre Technical Director, Steve Eckerd. The Recording Engineer is Jim Bennett. Theme music composed and performed by Pat Gleason. City Arts and Lectures was founded by Sidney Goldstein. To attend a live program, see who is coming next, or find out more about our podcast, visit our website at cityarts.net. That's cityarts.net.